Welcome to Evolutions Weekly, where we dive into the details of many periodic evolutions, elections. I'm your host, Alvin, and this week we're going to be doing something slightly different than our usual format. So if you've been keeping up with how we've been doing the show, so far what we've been doing mostly is kind of like talking about elections, you know, looking at polling data, looking at the results, looking at the various factors and things like that. But this week, you know, I'd like to try something different. It's going to be a format that's not you know, the one that we usually do. And instead, you know, it's going to be like a more broad topic and it's going to be, you know, it'll cover elections, it'll cover electoral politics. But I think at the same time, you know, it kind of like gets into this other point that I've been trying to make in that, you know, electoral politics, elections, and just like, you know, politics in general kind of tells you a lot about a nation's history and, and at the same time about a nation's future as well. Because, you know, it determines attitudes, it determines it tells you about sentiment. It tells you about, you know, the just the general zeitgeist. So, you know, in saying all this, what exactly do I mean? So, you know, if you guys have been keeping up with the news lately, you'd know that, you know, there's currently, you know, like lots of violence going on again, you know, in, you know, like Israel and Palestine, basically. So, you know, like, of course, you know, recently there's a ceasefire. So that's definitely great. But, you know, this conflict, you know, anybody... You know, even if you're not into politics, if you're not even if you're not into really into history, you know, everyone knows, you know, Israel and Palestine has always been a very troubled region, you know, like since, you know, the inception of Israel in like, you know, like the late 40s. And, you know, the recent string of violence is, you know, just merely a continuation of this long history. But, you know, in thinking about this conflict, you know, we've always gotten a lot of perspectives, you know, the religious perspective, the political perspective, the foreign policy, the international perspective, you know, we've gotten all, we've seen all of these things, you know, like be discussed and, you know, and people fighting and you know, concluding, you know, like things based on these perspectives. But I think, you know, like something as well that could be worth, you know, exploring and it's something that I intend to explore in this episode is actually the connection between, you know, this conflict and electoral politics, specifically Israeli electoral politics, and, you know, and how, you know, like, the rise of the Israeli right is actually responsible for an uptick, you know, a, an exponential uptick in violence, you know, like, within Palestine, and how that's ultimately, you know, like, making it more and more difficult f for a an actual Palestinian state to be, you know, created, and, you know, hence, you know, like, a two-state solution to the problem, as it were. Anyways, so, so I'm sure, you know, you know what you know what happened, and I'm sure, you know, you've heard a lot of things about that, but, you know, like, well, let's, you know, let's, let's dive more into this point about electoral politics. So, you know, so what does, you know, the Israeli political landscape actually look like? So, you know, like, pretty much in, like, Israel, Israel's early history, you know, actually, you know, there's been a dominance of, you know, like, left-wing factions, specifically, you know, the Israeli labor party, you know, actually dominating much of early Israeli politics and, like, kind of having a, a hegemony on it. Of course, you know, like, when we talk about Israeli politics today, you know, with Likud and things like that, you know, it's mostly, you know, considered a right-wing movement, and as such, Israel, you know, with its, you know, treatment of Palestinians, Arab Israelis, you know, is pretty much considered a solidly right-wing country. But how did we get to that point? That's what this episode's about. So, you know, I mean, like, with labor, you know, especially in, like, the 50s and 60s, you know, it's, like, it certainly wasn't perfect, you know, in terms of, like, the treatment of Palestinians, but the labor government's attitude towards Palestinians has always been, you know, like, slightly more amicable in a sense where it's, like, it's not this huge, like, deliberate, you know, like, racist, you know, like, 
like uptick of vi like uptick in violence, you know, like drive towards settlements. There were certainly illegal Israeli settlements, you know, in times of left-wing governments, but you know, nowhere near the levels that we're seeing right now. And that's you know that that's important to note. So, anyway, so like I said, you know, you know, today Israel is actually governed by the Likud party, you know, like the party of Benjamin Netanyahu, and of course, you know, Likud is the premier right-wing party in Israel. So, you know, Likud itself is actually founded in the early 1970s as a secular right-wing alliance. So there's a couple of, you know, like right-wing parties in Israel at the time, you know, with the, you know, with, with the interest of actually breaking, you know, like the labor hegemony within Israeli politics. Now, Likud itself, the name, you know, is actually Hebrew for consolidation. And this kind of like harkens back to like what I said to like the time when these couple of like right-wing parties, centrist parties, just kind of like wanted to get together to actually be a viable second choice for the elections. So of course, you know, and you know, like in terms of like its connections to, you know, the Israeli, you know, like right-wing movements, you know, previously, you know, of course, you know, besides being like, you know, like a combination of various prominent, you know, Israeli right-wing parties, it actually also has some connections to the Irgun. Now, if you no Israeli history, the Irgun is basically like this paramilitary, right-wing paramilitary organization founded, you know, like before Israel was even founded. And it's actually like one of the many, well, you know, you could consider them, I guess, quote-unquote terrorist organizations as well. What, you know, what the equivalent of that would be back then, you know, where, where they, they would terrorize, you know, British targets in an effort to actually gain independence and, you know, get an Israeli, like a, a Hebrew state, a Jewish state, basically. So, you know, the Irgun basically eventually turned into the Herut party, which was at the time the largest right-wing party in Israel, and Herut joined with a couple of other parties, and they formed Likud. So that's how Likud was formed. Now, this is the early 1970s, and they campaigned and campaigned, and they've actually managed to, you know, within a relatively short amount of time to actually gain power in 1977 under the tenure of Menachem Begin. So this event in, you know, Israeli history is known as the Begin Revolution. And it's, you know, it's quite interesting and it's quite unprecedented in a sense where it's like they essentially got to got the power essentially through, you know, like a populist revolution, essentially. So, you know, so I think in most places in the world, you know, like left and right, you know, the left wing movements are often viewed as the populist ones, often viewed as the movement of the working class, the movement of the, of the downtrodden, the disenfranchised, whereas the right wing movements have historically been considered, you know, a movement of the upper class, a movement of, the, you know, the aristocracy, a movement of, you know, the capitalist class, you know, like the, you know, like the people, you know, with capital, the managerial class, just, you know, and, and you see that's always the dichotomy that plays in most parts of the world. Now in Israel, what's interesting is that actually Likud was, I mean, like, and I guess to an extent still is, you know, actually, you know, they have their base in the Israeli working class. So labor, you know, being, you know, like a left-wing party, you know, like you would typically consider them, you might consider them as, you know, like a working class party, but that's not how Israelis see it. Israelis actually see labor instead as an elitist party, where, you know, these like Jewish European socialists would move to Israel and like essentially, you know, like enforce their own like intellectual view of the world onto the Israeli state. Whereas Likud, you know, being a movement of, you know, like a movement explicitly you know, like, founded on, you know, like, secular right-wing values, and, like, you know, later on Jewish, religious, and, you know, Hebrew cultural values, you know, like, is a, instead a movement of the working class, is a movement of, you know, people at the bottom, the downtrodden. Now, this is kind of, like, reflected as well, you know, it's, like, with 
labor dominance, of course, you know, like many of these sort of like elements in society, you know, the, the Orthodox Jews, the, you know, like the very traditional, traditionalist Jews, you know, like they would, they would have been like, you know, you know, like ostracized in society, as it were. And it, it was because they were ostracized in society at the time that they were support Likud and hence, you know, become dominant, a dominant force within Israeli politics. So for 1977 specifically, you know, in the Begin Revolution, you know, like the reason they were actually able to win at all is actually because of the Mizrahi Jews. So the Mizrahi Jews are actually, you know, Jews who, you know, who ran off from Middle Eastern and North African countries, basically. And the thing that makes them different from, you know, European Jews is that they're actually very religious, very cultural, very traditional, you know, in contrast to like European Jews who, many of whom were, you know, were even like atheists as well. You know, so then, like, in that sense, you know, like, the fact, you know, that, like, they were able to push for, like, this, you know, like, right-wing party to gain to power, you know, essentially what happened was, you know, like, with the Mizrahi Jews early on, pushing them into power, and, and eventually, you know, like, other right-wing traditionalist elements, you know, going into and supporting Likud, what Likud essentially became was, it went from a secular right-wing party, from essentially from a party that supports only, you know, secular right-wing policies, you know, like, fiscal conservatism, you know, like, you know, like, you know, thinking about the budget and deficit, you know, it's a very different, you know, like, tone to, like, you know, left-wing politics, you know, it's like, so instead of that, Likud instead, you know, puts themselves forward as, you know, a party that embraces Jewish culture, that embraces, you know, the Jewish religion, and, you know, as well, most importantly, Israeli nationalism. So, of course, you know, like, this is, of course, you know, seen by the fact that, you know, later on, even, the Haredim faction, emerged in within the Likud. Now, the Haredim Jews are basically these ultra-Orthodox Jews who, you know, who essentially even, like, reject many aspects of, of like, modern modern life, basically. So, you know, so you could see, you know, like, it's a very interesting party in that, you know, there are a lot of these, like, culturalist, traditionalist, you know, factions that make up the party, and that's essentially the tinge that they, that, that they take. And, you know, you know, like, over time, you know, they, they switched leaders, like, I think about four times, of course, you know, currently, you know, Net- Netanyahu, of course, Benjamin Netanyahu is the Israeli prime minister, and as well, you know, the dominant player within Likud, actually only dominant person within Likud, which is why, you know, thinking about his successor has always been difficult, because, well, there just isn't really, like, anybody prominent enough to actually take, fill those big shoes that, that he has. And, you know, of course, Netanyahu himself is, you know, very popular you know, within Israel, which is why, you know, he's been able to dominate, you know, Israeli politics as well by being, you know, like, part of Likud and hence, you know, the, the Likud ideology, you know, is, is able to, like, essentially be spread that way. Now, of course, it's not just Likud, although, you know, Likud itself is, you know, very, is much more, you know, like, traditional, is much more, you know, like, nationalist, but, you know, it's also, you know, to do with, like, their coalition partners as well, and this, you know, essentially makes the religious, you know, like, secular, you know, like, 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 connection, essentially, very clear, whereas, like, you know, Likud is founded as a secular party, meaning, you know, Israeli nationalism makes sense in Likud, but religious, you know, like, sentiments might not, but this is where, you know, this is the other piece of the puzzle, essentially, which, you know, like, kind of paints this picture of, like, a coalition between, you know, the, the ultra-Orthodox, you know, like, faction of Israel, as well as this ultra-nationalist faction of Israel. So their coalition partners in all their governments has always been a few, you know, small but important religious parties. You know, like two in particular, maybe like for now, it's like Shah's and United Torah Judaism, 
Now, for Shah's, for example, is actually a party for the Haredim Jews, basically. So, you know, they have about eight seats. Likud has about 30-something, you know, in most of their governments. So they're small on their own. But as part of Likud's coalition, they, they're, 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 they're by all means really important. And that's kind of like why, you know, you have like this, you know, like both a religious and nationalist element within, you know, Israeli right-wing movements and, you know, hence the Israeli government. And of course, you know, because of higher religi- religiosity and higher nationalism, of course, then, you know, this would correspond, of course, with, with a more radical attitude, with a more negative attitude towards Palestine and Palestinians. Now, you know, it's not to say that, you know, violence hasn't occurred in the past, but, you know, but but in this case, what we're seeing is that the violence is becoming more explicit. It's becoming more open in a sense where it's like, yeah, it's like it's always been I mean, Israel as a state has always been based on this idea of Zionism, which is like, you know, the idea that, you know, Jewish people need to have their own state. But then the way, you know, this is to be done has always been a big contention amongst Jews, you know, internationally, but also within Israel. So there are essentially two big streams of, you know, Zionism within Israel, which, you know, ultimately kind of determines their attitudes towards Palestinians indirectly, but also directly. So, you know, what we have is a fight between revisionist and labor Zionism. So, revisionist Zionism essentially is Likud's ideology. It's the tendency that we see in Likud, which is, you know, this idea that it's just more absolutist in a sense where it's like, yeah, all of Israel should belong to Jews. To Jews, You know, like, essentially, it's revisionist in that, you know, like, it seeks to, like, erase the history of the, of, of the region and essentially rewrite it to fit, you know, like, like this, like, like the Zionist narrative, essentially. So, it's a very... It's a very cultural heavy, it's a very nationalist heavy approach. Whereas, you know, labor Zionism embodied by the Israeli Labor Party, which, you know, by the way, now is completely irrelevant within Israeli politics, unfortunately. So their tendency is labor Zionism, which is, you know, is it's still Zionism in that, you know, they emphasize the need of a Jewish state. But, you know, it doesn't will really rely on culture. It doesn't really rely on nationalism. Instead, it relies on, you know, labor. It relies on the Jewish working class to actually, you know, like come together and, and then build the state. And because it's a, it comes from like an, like, like a more internal place, like a more of like a, yeah, you know, we have to build this state together rather than, a, you know, like we have to kick these people out kind of attitude. You know, that's, that's kind of like the main driving force behind the more peaceful attitude that, you know, the Israeli government had towards Palestinians early on. And, you know, like also as well, the revisionist attitude, which is like a lot more violent, it's a lot more explicitly us versus them. That's kind of like been driving Israeli politics lately, and that's what's been driving the violence essentially. And you know, but then that's us talking about ideology. But you know, what's kind of like the situation in the ground? Well, I mean, currently, you know, Israel, if you've been keeping up, you know, they don't have really have a, have a functioning government. So in the last three years since 2019, they've kind of had three elections within three years. And it's a simple reason that, you know, each time the election is held, they've kind of had like a deadlock in parliament. It's a hung parliament where, you know, the where Likud couldn't, can't form their own government, you know, by themselves because they lost a lot of seats. And at the same time, you know, the second place winner, the blue and white coalition, you know, they weren't, also weren't able to form a government. So what we have then essentially is the situation where, you know, where essentially both big parties can't form a government, so no one can form a government, so they have to keep doing elections over and over again. And even now, 
you know, despite having an agreement earlier in the year, despite blue and white, you know, initially do having an upset, but eventually, you know, like collapsing because of Yes Atids, which is this other centrist party's, you know, departure from the coalition. You know, despite all of that, we're, st- you know, we still have like this awkward situation within Israel where the government is there, the government is still led by Benjamin Netanyahu and Likud, but the government can't really, you know, like, do much in a sense, and the government doesn't really have the popular mandate, officially at least. So, you know, so then, like, you know, the speculation could be, you know, like, you know, like, is Likud, you know, reduce, is reducing in popularity? You know, like, maybe Israeli nationalism might not be reducing anytime soon, but, you know, maybe Likud itself, because of, like, the many, it's, you know, own fault as a political organization, you know, you know, like things like corruption scandals by Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, rising prices, you know, due to, you know, you know, just due to inflation and things like that, you know, and just like everyone's, every government's scourge, COVID, you know, just like things like that might be reducing its popularity overall. And, you know, as a result, you know, it's been really hard for them to get the majority that they need to govern the country despite Israeli nationalism being super popular. So with all of this in mind, you know, so then like an uptick in violence, you know, a more assertive attitude towards Palestinians then could could be seen instead as, you know, as an electoral strategy even, you know, even if we're going to be like really cynical about it. It's a strategy in a sense where it's like, yeah, because Likud is showing itself to be a more aggressive, you know, like actor towards Palestine, you know, this could essentially gin up the, you know, the, the nationalist, and ultra-orthodox, you know, like, liquid base, and, you know, possibly even, like, you know, get some swing voters who are lean more right. And, you know, and, you know, I guess it, it might work, but, you know, like, the few times that they've done this, you know, like, based on the violence that they've done in the past, you know, hasn't really done much electorally because, you know, like, the added popular attitude doesn't really, hasn't really changed much, and it's always been going in the right-wing direction for all these decades, you know, to the unfortunate you know, like, unfortunately, you know, on the part of Palestinians, but that's kind of like what how it's been in Israel. So, you know, like, to conclude, basically, you know, the future, you know, it's more or less bleak. Bleak in a sense where I can't really tell you what exactly is going to happen, but I can tell you that it's not, that it might not be good anytime soon. So, you know, I think there's a poll recently that I've heard of where, you know, they've actually polled, you know, Israelis, young Israelis, and, you know, it kind of shows that, you know, the younger generation now it's actually a lot more racist. It's a lot more, you know, like, has a lot more negative views about Palestinians than their older generation. Most of the world, it's usually the other way around, where the younger generation are more open-minded and they're more progressive about their views. But in Israel, you're actually seeing, like, a reverse. So, you know, this is obviously the divide between, you know, the older generation who would who voted for Labour and the younger generation who voted for Likud. So then, of course, you know, because Likud, you know, is got the hearts of the younger generation you know, they're likely to, like, to, like, to, like, stay in power for a long time. And at the same time, because their approach is really popular, you know, even if Likud was ever to be toppled from government, you know, by blue and white, by all these other parties, the attitude towards Palestinians might not change as much, you know, because, you know, like, it's, because they've shown that, you know, this kind of approach is actually very potent, it's very effective politically, but also, you know, in terms of, like, fulfilling their ideological goal of, you know, of revisionist Zionism, very, very effective. But then, you know, if we're talking about, like, outside factors, then, of course, there's also American backing, and then 
that's where people can come in and say, oh, you know, we could maybe like, they could sanction Israel for what they've done. You know, but then the thing is, Israel is one step ahead of them in a sense where Israel, you know, or the Israeli lobby is actually a very strong force within Washington, D.C. And that's how Israel has been always been able to lock in their alliance with the U.S., you know, and basically been kept unchecked, basically, you know, like they would get weapons, they would get favors, they would get subsidies, all, all these sorts of things, just because they have people in, in Washington talking to Congress people, talking to presidents about, you know, this need to support Israel for a whole bunch of, you know, dubious reasons, basically. And, you know, within the U.S. itself, you know, like the issue of Israel has always been bipartisan. Both Democrats and Republicans support the existence of Israel. But, you know, Republicans, of course, you know, with their evangelical base are a lot more radical about it. But, you know, by all means, you know, like Israel as an issue, you know, is, is very sensitive in the U.S. So unless there's a big change in attitude, and we've seen that in the younger generation, unless there's a big change in attitude in that way, it's unlikely that, you know, that, that the U.S. Would, like, would withdraw its support from Israel and hence, you know, be able to keep them accountable for their violence against Palestinians. And the Palestinian situation isn't even all that good either because, you know, as you, if you see a map, Palestine is divided into two. We have, the, we have Gaza and the West Bank. And Gaza is ruled by Hamas and the West Bank is ruled by the Palestinian Authority. And they hate each other. So, you know, in terms of like a unified Palestinian state, we don't even have that. So then, you know, like in terms of like representation in the UN and things like that, it's going to be a bit difficult, you know, for them to claim, you know, to be a united state, a united front against, you know, increasing Israel encroachment. So essentially, while Hamas and the Palestinian Authority are fighting amongst, amongst themselves, you know, and Arabic countries abandoning them, each day that goes by, they have less and less of a claim for a state. So eventually, you know, like Israel might just end up gobbling them up. And, you know, and they've made explicit that, you know, that that's what they like to do. So, you know, so what can solve this? Yeah, so I guess like what can probably solve it is, yeah, American sanctions, American, uh, you know, like Americans keeping Israel account accountable, which, you know, which, which means, you know, there needs, to be, there needs to be a change in the part of the Americans as well. But, you know, maybe also like a left-wing resurgence could perhaps tone down the attitude but like i said the younger generation are more right-wing they love they could you know if if they're not religious then they're nationalist so then it's gonna be a bit difficult and that's why i say it's bleak now doesn't mean that all hope is lost but you know but as as of right now basically you know with the right wing you know with, with the right in israel you know unlike unstoppable essentially as a political force it's unlikely that, you know, violence will tone down anytime soon or that they would, might adopt a different approach to occupation and things like that. And with, uh, you know, losing support with Palestinians, losing support from the Arab world and they themselves not having political unity, it's going to be a bit difficult in that, in that way as well to make, make a two-state solution. Now, of course, you know, like, this isn't like an explicitly political podcast, so I can't really propose any sort of solution. But, you know, that's basically what the situation is. And, you know, and, and, and what the main driving forces behind the violence in Palestine is. So anyways, you know, it's like, so this is just me like trying out like a new format. And, you know, because of just how many elections are happening this year, you know, like I've been lucky to not have to like start, you know, essentially going into the barrel for like random topics. But, you know, in like a slow month, in a slow year, you know, we're going to be doing more of these, you know, like introspective, more, you know, more deep dives into 
you know, like political trends, you know, like electoral trends, political figures, things like that. And, you know, so, you know, if you guys like it, you know, by all means, you know, like tell me, you know, like in the comments, if you're, if you're on YouTube or, you know, if you're on Spotify, you know, just like or if you're on any other podcast platform, just, you know, give this podcast a follow because we'll be doing a lot more stuff like this. And if you're on YouTube, again, comment, you know, like tell me if you like it or not. Tell me what else you want me to discuss and, you know, subscribe, like the usual. All right. And in terms of what we're going to do next week, I'm still not sure yet. But, you know, it'll definitely be obvious when I actually do it. All right. See you then.